Open your Bibles to Galatians 2. I want to look at a few verses there before we go into the main part of the sermon. We just sang a song of commitment, desire that God would use us and that we would be faithful in uh, what he asks of us to do. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says, well, verse 19, he says, For I through the law am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. He's desiring a life that is living for God. And then he goes into a lot of description about how that works. Verse 20 is just full of giving you an education on how salvation is put together. He says in verse 20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The title for messages this evening would be Living for Self or Living for God. Kind of a question. But here in verse 20 he says, I'm crucified with Christ, and he, and he calls your attention to the act of crucifixion, the act of dying. You know, and just as Christ hung on the cross until he experienced death, and I'm not quite sure how that death works. I'm not going to get into the in-depth part of that. But we know how regular death works for a regular person. We become insensible to all around us. There is no amount of poking, prodding, sticking with a pen, whatever. It, it just doesn't, you know, and that can happen in an unconscious state, but at death, nothing can bring you back except a miracle of God. And just as he, he says, I'm crucified with Christ. And just as Christ hung on that cross and died, so I, as a Christian, need to become insensible to the things of this life. And he's probably, first of all, pointing back to what he was talking about in verse 19, where he talks about the law, and that he is dead to the law. But we can take it farther than that, where, where we would look at it and say, yes, he became insensible to the law as a means of justification, but he also became insensible to the world, to ambition and the love of money, to the pride and pomp of life, and to the dominion of evil and hateful passion. And you say, no, wait a minute. I haven't quite experienced all of that in my life. Well, that's taking it to its final destination. Paul also tells us in Romans that there were all sorts of things that he knew he shouldn't be doing, and yet when he allowed his body, his fleshly nature to work unchecked and unhindered, he did things that he didn't want to do. So here in this verse, he's saying, you know, this is the outcome of a life committed to, to God. That the things of earth will grow dim. We will, they, they have lost their power over you. 
And maybe if you, you say, well, I feel like I'm still sorely tempted in some areas. Don't feel like you're alone. Um, being a preacher doesn't take that thing away. It's only through constant uh, renewal of our minds and constant washing of the water of the word and, and working, um, allowing God to work in our hearts and lives. But, but those things now have lost their power, though. Once a person becomes a Christian and allows Christ to have control of their life, these things lose their power over the Christian person. Now, we have to respond to the power of God in a proper way, or Satan is going to try to get a foothold back in their life. Let's go on and, and keep studying here. He says, I am crucified with Christ, but he says, I'm still alive. Yeah, he said, I, I was dead, or I died with Christ in the salvation experience, but he said, I'm not inactive. A, a dead person is inactive. And he's, he's saying, I have and am able to be active. I, I, I'm an active person. I'm dead to the things of the law and the things of this world, but I'm alive to Christ and the things of God. All things that pertain to God, I am alive to those things. They mean something to me, and they bring about a response in my life that is positive, that comes out in my everyday living. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. But he's quick to say, it's not me. <clears throat> it is not in man to take that credit to himself. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. So he's, he's giving all the honor and glory to Christ, that Christ is the one that is able to work in my heart and life in such a way that even though I've been crucified with Christ and my old nature is, is dead and passed, passed away and I'm living in newness of life here, it is only by the power and grace of God and through his son, Jesus Christ. He is not doing it in his own power. He's doing it through Christ living in him. And he goes on there and, and explains it further. And he says, and the life which I now live in the flesh. He's, he's making sure we know that he's not in a heavenly body at this point. He said, I'm still here in the flesh. I'm still, I'm still a mortal man. And I face temptation. I face all sorts of trouble and trials around me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He, he had that first and foremost in his mind that God, Christ, did such a wonderful work on the cross for him that it made a difference in his life. It was, it was changing, life-changing. And it changed his life into something that was of honor and glory to God. Do we live for self or do we, are we living for, for God? <clears throat> A justified person hath fellowship with Christ in the likeness and similitude of his death, and that is a crucifixion. And, and this is a good 
point for us to take into consideration here that as Christ died a painful, shameful, lingering, and a cursed death for him, so doth sin die painfully, shamefully, and gradually in man. So, you know, and there, there are people that would teach that once you're saved, you should not have any more uh, desire or any... If you even are tempted, you're not saved. There's a church, I guess you call it that, maybe a cult, not too far from us. They're scattered around the country. They started in California, but there's a group south of us about an hour and a half. And they, they believe that, that if people have come to God in a true salvation experience, and they believe in the, a second work of grace that comes at a separate time, way down the road somewhere. But they believe that the, uh, a Christian will not be tempted again. And their people live in, in fear. Because they know deep down inside that, yes, they are tempted. So every year there's a long line of people that get rebaptized because they finally had salvation experience again. They hope they did. So they get rebaptized again. And I guess, from what I've heard, I haven't been there, but from what I've heard, there's some people get baptized every year at their annual meeting um, because they, they want that and they believe that they're not saved otherwise. And then they find out that the old nature is still there and they're troubled by that. And we realize that as Christ died that painful lingering death, so does our old man die a long death too. It's a lifelong process. Paul says, I die daily. I, I have to get on that cross with Christ every day and be committed to living for him. So this evening we want to look at a parable that should challenge our commitment to God and whether we are crucified with his son. So you can turn to Matthew chapter 22 at this point. A lot of my sermons this week will be based on parables. I find a lot of help for myself there, and I enjoy digging into them. And uh, so hopefully you're not too bored by the many parables that we'll be looking into this week. By the way, we uh, had children's meeting this evening. I plan on having it again, let's see, Tuesday found having it again on Thursday evening and Saturday evening. Now that's subject to change, but that's kind of what we're thinking at this point. Matthew chapter 22, let's begin reading at verse 1 there. Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is likened to a certain king which made a marriage for his son, and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Again he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready, come unto the marriage. But they made light of it, and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants, and entreated them spitefully, and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth. Then he sent forth his armies, and destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready. But they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. 
So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. Now pay a special attention to the uh, next few verses here. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. And you can see in the next verse that the Pharisees realized this was spoken somewhat to them, and they're upset, and they're taking counsel how they can entangle him in his talk and try to turn him around. Because they realized this was pointed somewhat at them. The first point we want to uh, consider this evening in relation to this parable is there was a total disregard for the king's invitation. A total disregard for the king's invitation. <clears throat> and, and Paul there in Galatians said, I am crucified with Christ. He accepted the invitation. He understood what Christ wanted of him and the cost. And he was willing to pay the price. And he looked forward to the reward. That motivated Paul. So a question you need to ask yourself this evening as we discuss this subject is, what motivates you? Why do you do the things you do each day? Okay, there's cows to milk, there's cabinets to build, there's schools to visit. There's, you know, whatever mechanic work to do or whatever. You know, there's all sorts of things that we have to do. You might say, well, that kind of motivates me. But what is the bottom line in your Christian life? And that should merge into your everyday life also. What motivates you? A desire for self or a desire for God? I'll... I'll be saying that question a couple more times this evening. What motivates you? A desire for self or a desire for God? In verse 3, the king, and we would call that God, uh, or make that parallel, said to his servants, he says, call them that were bidden to the wedding. These were people that had, had already received an invitation. They were people, they were good Mennonites. They were good Anabaptists. They, they understood about the Bible. These were not people that were foreign to it. And as Jesus, probably in his setting there, he was trying to get across to the scribes and Pharisees that you have had the word of God uh, of the Old Testament nature, at least, with you all these years. You have, you have been God's chosen people. Why are you uh, rejecting me? But... Back to the parable. He sends forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding. And what happened? He called them that were bidden. It gives the idea that they had agreed to come. That, that they had made a step towards Christ. That they had accepted salvation, if we want to put it in terms for ourselves this evening. And he, uh, he, he bids these people to... Uh, if, if we want to draw a parallel to today, make it practical, he's asking them to be committed to the cause of Christ. He's asking them to, to serve 
him without reserve, without um, anything else taking the, their attention away. But what happened when these people were called? You know, and sometimes we become Christians and we live along in our Christian life and we are doing the best we know how. And then God calls us to a different part of his kingdom. Maybe it involves a move. Maybe it just involves doing something in the congregation we're not used to. And we say, oh God, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go have revival meetings. <laughs> um, we, we, we get called to do things and we fear. Fear is, is a big factor in our lives. We're afraid of what people will think. We're afraid we won't be... We, we have some standard, and it's not about God, that we fear and worry about. Anyway, what do these people do? In verse 3, it says they would not come. So you have a group of people that just ignored it. If I ignore it long enough, it'll go away, right? That works with your teeth, but not with problems usually. Problems get worse. So they ignored it. Going down to verse 5. He sends, uh, he realized there's a problem. The king realized there's a problem. So he sends more servants to them with a greater explanation of what's happening. And what they do in verse 5? It says they made light of it. They made fun of it. To them is a big joke. You can't be serious. I can't do that. I can't come right now. I can't, I, 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 you know, and part of it sometimes is our own fault because of financial situations we have placed ourselves in where we aren't able to serve. We aren't able to do what God would really like us to do. At home, we've been studying in Kingdom Focus Finances on our Wednesday evening prayer meeting. And it's been a good study for me and I'm hoping for our church as we think about using our finances for God. These people didn't take it seriously though. They said, really? You really? Oh, uh, we're too busy. We can't do this. It's, it's beyond... You know, they weren't motivated by a desire for God. They were motivated by a desire for self. If you would go over now to Luke 14, you're not going to, don't, don't necessarily turn there, but if you go to Luke 14, there's somewhat of a similar passage there that they think would be, uh, was given at the same time. And there they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground. I must needs go and see it. I pray thee have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. I go and prove them. I pray thee have me excused. Another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Was there anything wrong with any of the things that were given? Doing those things in and of themselves is not sin. Buying land. Uh, buying a tractor getting married uh, in its proper way. There's nothing wrong with that. But those things must not come between us and what God is asking us to do. All right, then going on to verse 6 there in, in Matthew 22, it says, The remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. 
So you, you go from ignoring it to making fun of it to now you have this group of people or some part of the people are violently opposed to doing what God has invited them to do. Oh, we would never do something like that. Well, not exactly in the form that they did, but we can uh, make hash sometimes out of other people's reputation. We can gossip about people. We can talk people down. You know, in that effort to lift ourselves up, as we talked about the haughty spirit last night in the, in the pride part of the pre-sermon, we do those things. And in those ways, we entreat those in leadership or those that are in authority over us spitefully. The king hears about that. He sends his armies and destroys those murderers and burns up their cities. You know, God has invited us to take part in his kingdom and to serve him, to, to live daily for him. And when we ignore it, make fun of it, or even oppose it, we're opposing God. You know, many of us in our lifetime have accepted that invitation. And maybe you haven't accepted that invitation tonight. And you're considering the cost. There is a cost involved in following Christ. But many of us have accepted that invitation. And we, we promise God that we'll put Him first in our life. And that that'll be our priority. And somehow... My self-interest and the material things in this world, they get a hold on me and they change the way I serve Christ or don't serve him. 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul talks about a man, he says, For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 4, the writer there said, When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. When we have made commitments and promises to God, God needs to be first in our life. The desire for self must be, must be crucified with Christ. We still have the opportunity to live. We're not just a dead body. But we now live by the faith of the Son of God. What motivates you? A desire for self or a desire for God? <clears throat> the great missionary to India, William Carey, became deeply concerned about the attitude of his son, Felix. The young man, a professing Christian, had promised to become a missionary, but he broke his vow when he was appointed ambassador to Burma. Wow. Became ambassador to Burma? Carey requested prayer for him. Pray for Felix. He has degenerated into an ambassador of the British government when he should be serving the King of Kings. His father felt that he was falling. Now, Felix may have thought that he had really attained something to, by becoming the ambassador to Burma. But Felix's father said, I feel that he has degenerated into an ambassador of the British government when he should be serving the King of Kings. And what a privilege it is for us. God has given us this invitation. Are we going to ignore it? 
Are we going to make fun of it? Are we going to oppose it? It's a privilege to come to Christ. There are people in our world that know nothing about it. I'm amazed. It's been a few years since I've been to Chicago, but I'm amazed the different times that I go. Oftentimes, somebody in the group meets someone that wonders who Jesus is. Doesn't know. Doesn't know the way of salvation. Doesn't know anything about the way of the cross. And that amazes me. Because it seems like here in America, we should all know that. And it would be some heathen country, certainly, that wouldn't, wouldn't uh, know that. It's a privilege to come to Christ. It is a privilege to read the Bible. It's a privilege to pray. It's a privilege to come to God's house. It is a privilege to worship. It is the highest privilege in the world to serve Christ. And yet so often we take that privilege lightly. Well, if it suits, if it works out, I'll serve you, Lord. Number two, there is a total disregard for the king's messengers. Again, as you relate to people, what, is, what does motivate you? Is it a desire for self? You know, in our relationships with our leaders, with our people that are in authority over us, that desire for self comes to the surface so quickly and so easily and it changes how we deal with people. Now, when our desire is for God, then we come across in a right, path, a right way, a right path. Um, what motivates you? You know, when you're wrong and somebody points it out, what do you do about that? These messengers came from the king in this parable and they said, People, you need to get with the program. This, this feast is basically ready. Get over here. You guys have wasted too much time already. The king is not happy about this. You're doing the wrong thing. And they became angry. That's what happened when those people began to entreat them spitefully and, and ended up uh, killing some of the uh, messengers. There is an irritation that arises from being made aware that one is in the wrong that results in anger with those who would seek to lead them back in the right paths. Now that's not really fair, is it? No. But we strike out at the closest person that's available. And usually that's the person that came to us and said, I believe you have a problem there in your life. I would like to pray with you. I would like to help you with this situation. I, I've had problems too. But we become irritated at that person. Who does he think he is? He has faults too. Why is he talking to me? There's other people that have faults. A lot worse than mine. Many years ago, while on a visit to America, a wealthy Chinese businessman was fascinated by a powerful microscope. Looking through its lens to study crystals and the petals of flowers, he was amazed at their beauty and detail. So he decided to purchase one of these devices and take it back to China. He thoroughly enjoyed using it until one day he examined some rice he was planning to eat for dinner. Much to his dismay, he discovered that tiny living creatures were crawling in it. Since he was especially fond of this staple food in his daily diet, he wondered what to do. Finally, he concluded there was only one way out of his dilemma. 
he would destroy the instrument that caused him to discover the distasteful fact. So he smashed the microscope to pieces. That works. Works good, doesn't it? How foolish, you say. But many people do the same thing with the Word of God or with, with proper knowledge about how to live the Christian life. I'll ignore it. I'll get rid of it. I'm done reading the Bible. It's telling me things I don't want to hear. That make it any less true? Does that change truth? No. I'm always struck when I read that passage. I think it's in Jeremiah where that king takes the message that God sent to the prophet Jeremiah. And he takes that scroll and he reads for a while and he takes his pen knife and he cuts a chunk out and he throws it in the fire. Did he really think he was going to change God's truth? He obviously did not have a proper respect and, and place in his life for God's truth. It didn't really matter to him. And he didn't want to be reminded of the things that Jeremiah was pointing out. Number three, there was a total disregard for the king's provision. And I, until I really studied this, I always wondered exactly what, what went on here. This man in verse 11. King comes in to see the guests. He saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. Was that fair? What happened there? You know, that's my question when I read a story like this. And, <clears throat> but here's, here's what I learned from studying history on these things. That it was a custom back then that when you were invited to a wedding feast that the person that invited you provided you with the robes. There was a check-in place back at the, in the entryway where you could check your old clothes and get a wedding garment. The king or whoever was in charge there, he provided, I mean, maybe the bride wanted all purple or something like that. So everybody had to wear purple robes. I don't know what if color was involved there, but there was a certain type of clothing you had to wear at that wedding. But it was provided for you at the door. Or maybe even somewhere before the door, but it was provided. There is no reason you could would be in that <clears throat> wedding, be at that wedding, without the proper clothes. So, we can assume from that that the man refused the provisions. And that's like trying to get into heaven by my own way. Trying to figure out how I can do it my way instead of taking the provisions that are here in the Word of God and saying, this is God's way for getting in. I must go by the way of the cross. I must repent my sins. I must confess sin in my life. And I must accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And His blood will cover those sins and I, will, I can be a child of God. This man was basically saying, no, I've got a different way. I can go in in my old clothes. Have you ever heard that? I'll get to heaven my way. You go ahead and do it your way. I'll get to heaven my way. We'll all get there. All roads lead there some way. What kind of attitude goes with that? His attitude may have been, nobody's going to order me about. You ever hear that attitude? Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Don't, you know, there's too many rules. There's too many... Uh, people trying to tell me what to do here. If the king wants me at his feast, he'll just have to take me the way I am. 
I'm good enough the way I am. That's another attitude. And we can come across with that attitude with our human brothers and sisters. But God doesn't take that as proper. And church leaders sweat and stress and worry about how people are responding to leadership in the church. When you have an attitude like this is prevalent. You can say, yeah, we'll talk about dress tonight. Yes, kind of. It can, it can boil down to some of those things because I feel like whatever church has in their rules and regulations about how people should dress, that's the way the group of people that want to be part of that church, they should dress that way. But it's more than that. It's more about the attitudes that I want to do things my way and I do not want to be in subjection to my brothers and sisters in a brotherhood. That's really what it boils down to. So as, as God has provided for me a church fellowship and a place of worship and a place of, of relationship with other Christians and I do not avail myself of the full bounty that is there because of my pride and my own desperate ideas about how things should be done. I decide that I can do it on my own. I can do it my own way, however I want to do it. He had an attitude of self-will and disregard for the graciousness of the king. Remember, the king made all provisions for him to have the proper attire when he came in there. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, for he, hath been made, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God has provided for us. Philippians 3.9, And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. It's not something we can do or that I can produce of my own. It is something that must come through God and from God to me. God's made the provisions. As a result of Christ's provision, we read in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You know, and the great thing is, is that when we come to God, we can come just as you, we are, just as you are, just as I am. I can come that way. But you won't stay that way. If you come that way and stay that way, you haven't left the pig pen yet. You can come just as you are, but you cannot remain just as you are. <clears throat> so, as we think about that, the provisions that God has made for us, do we identify with the people of God in our actions? Do people know that you're part of the Blooming Prairie Church. Oh, yeah. Know who you are. I know where you go to church. You don't know who the person is. You wonder about that. Makes you feel pretty good inside. It's not good enough to get you into heaven, but it, it is a, a good feeling to think that you're identified in that way. Do, I, do we identify with the people of God in our actions, our dress, and who we associate with? The last point is that there was a total disregard for the king by this man. 
by the by the man earlier, or people earlier, and also this man. Thinking of this man especially, when the king addressed that guest, I don't think he was thinking so much about the garment. Because he says, why did you do this? What motivated you to do this? Why did you come this way? You know, here's the outward sign of what I can see is happening on the inside of you and why did you do it? And you know, we can have all these great arguments for why we should do and go the directions we go. Do the things we do and go the directions we go. But when God in the final judgment asks you, why did you do it that way? What's going to happen? The same thing that happened here. We're going to be speechless. I there is some people in our church. They were talking. I don't think they talked directly to me. They talked to John some about it, and they're they're worried about some family members. They said, you know, when we get together with them, it's not comfortable anymore. They're telling us that we don't understand the Bible because we don't have freedom. You know, we're we're tied and we're in this church and. And, you know, that uh, the freedom of the Spirit would never have us do these things. And it's all about doing things between you and God and the Spirit and all. And they said, it's just so difficult to work with them. They said, they have these all these many different arguments. And they said, we're doing a lot of studying to know how to answer them. But they said, it becomes difficult after a while. And I'm not sure that we do, a lot, do ourselves a favor by arguing with people like that very long. But those people, for all their arguments, will one day, I feel like, they'll be speechless. And the king gives the orders for him to be taken away. When confronted, this man was speechless. He had no excuse for his deliberate act of self-will. He could not plead a lack of time. Everybody else there had enough time to find a wedding garment. He could not say, I was too poor to buy the things that were needed here. Because the king provided it. His silence actually spoke volumes. It was a sin of neglect, the total disregard for the king. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. No God. Nothing of God. God is not. And we can glibly say that if we would like here tonight. We can ignore God. We can put God off on a shelf somewhere and not serve him. Or we can allow God's spirit to speak to us and point out areas in our life. And Praise the Lord if, if you are in proper and right relationship with God. I'm, I'm sure many of you are. Um, hopefully no one here would take that dangerous ground of saying the fool has said in his heart there is no God now up till the time that the king came in and saw this man I think there was opportunity for him to use the king's provision and tonight there is still time for you and for me to make good use of the king's provision and we need to do that every day that the robe of righteousness that God would provide for us would cloak our lives 
every day as we are with others, as we go out into public, that other people would see that what motivates me is not a desire for self, but it's a desire for God. You, you can see that in this man's response, his lack of response. He said, I'll do it my way, and then he was speechless. We find that he was living for self, and then when the final question came, why did you do it, he couldn't answer. If he had been living for God, he had been wearing the pro proper clothing. He would have used God's provision. So I challenge you this evening, are you in that right relationship with God? That God is speaking to you and wants a better relationship with you. Maybe you've disregarded the king's messenger or the king's message or the king's invitation or maybe the king himself. And, and those kind of come as a package, in, incidentally. You don't just pick or choose between those four, really. It's all part of a package deal. We need to choose to use the provisions that God has given us and be in a right relationship with him.